0: Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamics, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamics' Ryan Hummel and Mindy McGrath to talk about what's trending now. One of the headlines, that caught my attention was the announcement of Amazon Pharmacy rolling out a service for unlimited generic drug prescriptions for just $5 a month. It's going to be called RX Pass and be available to Prime members, and it will ship generic medications regardless of quantity to customers' homes for a flat monthly fee of just $5. The service will cover 50 commonly prescribed generic medications that treat more than 80 very common health conditions, including high blood pressure and acid reflux. So, it is intended to reach a huge piece of the US healthcare marketplace. Unfortunately, this is only available to cash and commercial patients, and those consumers with government funded insurance, such as Medicare or Medicaid, are not eligible to sign up for RxPass at the moment. It's also unavailable in eight states, including some pretty big ones like California, Pennsylvania, and Texas.
1: It is pretty big news, and we know because we talk about this stuff every week, Amazon is certainly not the first mover in this space. We've seen Walmart that has offered a subscription-based prescription program for generic drugs for as low as $4 a month for a long time. Mark Cuban's Cost Plus Drugs company is expanding as well. Every few months, we see... An expanded formulary for them, and they're offering consumer higher cost generic drugs at a low cost with just a small 15% markup. This approach really leverages Amazon's core capabilities the idea that they have kind of a, a market leadership position in merchandising, order processing, supply chain infrastructure, order management, and not to mention, they have about 150 million Amazon Prime members. Based on revenue estimates, however, Amazon would really need to capitalize this and develop scale quickly in order to get some substantial profits for this program.
0: There are some that have been hypothesizing in reaction to this news that it could be a loss leader for Amazon and be something that's more intended to set the stage for for future moves. It could give them the opportunity to increase their prime membership overall, which is one of their major revenue streams but it could also give them access to a treasure chest of health-related consumer data. We know that Prime is most popular among millennials, and given the recent purchase of One Medical by Amazon, this access to be able to identify potentially relatively healthy patients or understand the marketplace better could be a key strategic move as they're looking at what their options are with that acquisition. And furthermore it can just help normalize the role of Amazon in the prescription drug space and get that brand association there
2: for any sort of future expansions that they're planning. Yeah Ryan as you were talking about the need for them to scale pretty rapidly in order to recognize some return on investment for this I think you look at some of the other models that have come to market first and I think about GoodRx and their growth has been explosive as of late but it did take some time to establish this foundation with healthcare customers. And perhaps when you think about Amazon and the role that Amazon plays in customers' everyday lives, they might already have a leg up in how they activate and engender trust for their Amazon Prime members so that that scale up becomes more compressed. You know, I think at the end of the day, when you look at Amazon entering this marketplace, no doubt this seems to be an area Where there's a lot of focus and perceived opportunity. I think this is one more option that consumers have to be able to find medications at a lower cost along with things like discount cards and direct to consumer pharmacies that also offer some of these low-cost options. I would expect to see that these cash pay kind of discounted types of programs will continue to enter the marketplace because there is so much headline news around the concern about drug pricing. The thing that I would note though, is that when we are talking about many of these, right now they're all playing in the generic space, which really impacts such a small percentage of overall drug spending in order to really move the needle. I think some of these organizations, Amazon included, are going to need to really address what they do with brand name products as well as specialty therapies. Speaking of overall healthcare costs, a headline that caught my eye recently was a study that was published that stated that many individuals' health outcomes suffer if they choose high deductible health plans. We have talked about high deductible plans in previous Trending Health podcasts, and just the tremendous growth that we have seen in the adoption of HDHPs, really driven right by this pursuit to not only reduce healthcare spending, but also get consumers more engaged in their health. Oftentimes there's this tension between high deductible health plans that are offered and whether consumers really understand how to navigate this benefit construct, this fine line between do you put too much money in a deductible plan that it actually creates unintended consequences and unintended behaviors. Mayo Clinic researchers had published these findings that employers switching diabetic patients to high deductible health plans actually increased the odds of an emergency department visit or a hospital visit for diabetics that are suffering from hyperglycemia by about 25% with the odds increasing by 5% for each year that an employee was enrolled in a high-deductible health plan. We know that severe diabetic episodes can be avoided through really effective glycemic management. That they occur actually suggests to me that patients are experiencing gaps in care. Why they're experiencing, I think we still have to really understand that, but. As I think about high deductible health plans, I think that one of the largest challenges in this, and it's highlighted in the study, right, is that the literacy around how to navigate high deductible health plans when you have a health care occurrence or when you have a chronic condition continues to be a really big challenge for the health system.
0: Such great points, Mindy. Because employees that are in these plans first have to pay the cost for healthcare in full up until they meet their annual deductible which can be $1,400 or more for an individual, those with chronic conditions might actually be rationing some of that preventative and maintenance care. Even though we know on the whole, primary care can be much less costly than care received in the emergency department. And even though that these plans are touted for their low premiums and low cost to the consumer overall, to your point, they're not always the best fit for every individual, particularly those with chronic conditions. I would love to see some movement in this space where potentially employers are considering consultative sessions where they can take their employees through what those options mean in terms of cost for various patient situations, not just the best case scenario, um, we're only accounting for premium, but helping individuals really understand that total cost of care. There's also been some discussion recently that I find really encouraging about the case for value-based high deductible plans where certain preventative medications, certain types of preventative treatments are actually exempted from that high deductible and can help bring down the overall cost of care, both for for the patient, but for the plan and the employer overall.
1: Another thing we're watching is interesting coming from the Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, and they're pressing Congress this session to adopt some legislation that expands the footprint of site neutral payment reform. The Blues, right, the association in this group of 34 entities has some real power in Capitol Hill. And if you think about what site neutral payments are, it is this idea or philosophy that healthcare providers get reimbursed the same amount for providing the same services, regardless of the site of care in which they do so. You know, you can think about inpatient versus outpatient clinic. Inpatient versus a nursing home, you can understand that there is a lot of cost savings that could occur by pushing this. So there's there's two sides of the coin here, and some of the policies focus on changing these Medicare reimbursement rates to pay the same amount from a payer perspective. There's a lot of cost advantages because right now there's a lot of discrepancies between the reimbursement. But another side of this penny, as they say, is this idea that it could decrease access to care could institute some lack of incentives for quality improvement, just thinking about some of these negative impacts. And if you think about how rural hospitals, for example, rely on higher reimbursement rates for outpatient services, there's just a lot going on and a lot of things to talk about on there. So Mindy, I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of the main priorities or the difference between these things.
2: When you look at the Blues Association stepping into this, I think what they're really trying to do is encourage Congress to take some action by establishing their point of view on why Congress should adopt this legislation to expand the footprint of these site neutral payment reforms. And to your point, Ryan, I think that likely sets up a clash right with hospital groups that have a very, very different perspective on site neutral payment reform. So I think about some of the, the main priorities around this and it's to pass a bill that would remove grandfathering provisions from way back in 2015. that. Balanced Budget Act that was passed and really shields certain hospital outpatient departments from billing limits established in the law with the exception of emergency departments. I think some of the other main priorities are focused on requiring off-campus hospital sites to actually get a different national provider identifier than the main facility campus and to use different claim forms for any professional services rendered in an office or a clinic owned by a hospital. The goal right, is to get a better sense of the difference in pay rates between hospital-affiliated and independent clinics. As we have talked about before, there are still many miles to go when it comes to really understanding what Congress is going to do on this. I think by the Blues Association stepping up and presenting a point of view on this, they are hopeful right, to be able to advance some movement on this in a Congress that is very divided where we don't know how it's going to play out and where Congress is going to put their priorities this year. But I think the association is really trying to advance this effort through Congress very early on in this new session. Thanks, Mindy and Ryan, for taking us through these headlines. A lot of
0: conversations on cost in the start of this year. But as always, we know the only constant in the healthcare industry is change. So I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health Podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune in to the next episode, where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.